Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Paulina Tenner. Paulina is the founder of Grantree, an open culture company that pioneered an open salary scheme to help tech startups navigate the complex world of government funding, raising close to £60 million for more than 600 of them in the process. A serial entrepreneur, TEDx speaker and author by day, Paulina was once known to don a corset and turn into a burlesque dancer at night. She's recently written a book on how she applies her past burlesque experiences to her role as a business founder entitled What the Business Leader Learned from the Stripper. Paulina says, be an absolute cunt. She, of course, means be curious, unapologetic, notorious and trustful. We'll explain more on that later, but for now I'll say welcome to the show, Paulina. Hello, so good to be on the show. We'll start with our seven quick-fire questions, Paulina. So, tea or coffee? Uh, Coffee. Krakow or London? Both. <laughs> I was born in Krakow, so both. Burlesque or business? Uh, that depends whether it's daytime or nighttime, so kind of both, yeah. Corset or Dorset? Oh my god. Uh, uh, let's say corset. Masculine or feminine leadership? A blend, a good, wholesome blend of both. Good stuff. Notorious or trustful? Ah. Uh, Notorious when I have to get shit done and trustful when I need to surrender. <laughs> and lastly, the vomit edit or the fuck up meetup. Right now, fuck up meetup sounds like, you know, what we need to bring into the world. <laughs> yeah, I agree. We'll talk on that again later. Uh, so, Paulina, to, to kick us off, it's always nice to understand how people started off in their career. So, can you tell us what? was your first job and then also what was your first inverted commas proper job right so uh check this out i was cleaning corporate loos in sheffield and i'm not i'm I'm absolutely serious i still remember the days when i um it was actually a summer job i wanted to earn some money to come and study in the uk uh, since i was awarded the erasmus scholarship and i wanted to have some a little bit of money in the kitty to see me through so i came to the uk landed in sheffield where my friend was based that would have been 2006 something like that and i ended up cleaning corporate loose yeah <laughs> and how come you ended up in sheffield my friend was based there so my my friend was based there so i went to visit her and then i stayed and and looked for summer jobs and rented myself a tiny box room and essentially went out there to make some make a little bit of money okay and do you have fond memories of Sheffield yeah particularly the loos were great <laughs> it's really clean. but I actually there's a story around that because I, I met a um, 
a really cool girl from Malaysia cleaning those loose. We're cleaning the loose together. And uh, I later on wanted to went to visit her in Kuala Lumpur. So we, we made really good friends. That was that was fun. Yeah, amazing. Ah, cool. And do you, do you ever go back to Sheffield? I've been uh, recently once to give a workshop on tax credits and grants, and it was nice to see it again. Uh, yeah, after so many years. Yeah, cool. I, I I mean, I'm pushing you on that point mostly because I have family in Sheffield and I'm always oh, interested to know what yeah. thoughts are. It's a cool little place. I like it. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, it's got a lot going for it. And then and then, how, what happened after that then? So how did that evolve into more of a, a career? <laughs> <laughs> Not that, that can't be a career. I started cleaning bigger and bigger loos and then, and then I, you know, they were so big I needed to get, get inside and clean them from the inside. No, uh, my career ended up <laughs> being a little bit disparate from, uh, a little bit different from actually the, 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 the cleaning and the housekeeping uh, service I was providing at, at the age of what, what, whatever it was, 21. When I actually started my scholarship at UCL, I was absolutely fascinated by the bearded geeks with pints of beers, you know, walking around meetups and talking about product market fit, which I had no idea what it meant at the time. And I just thought, isn't it amazing that those people have so much chutzpah and uh, this positive kind of arrogance where they genuinely think they can change something in an industry make it better and I I kind of got hooked I really wanted to become one of those beard well that didn't mean growing a beard but (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to become one of those people who genuinely believe they can change something in a given industry and I set up my first company with a business partner that was 30 years my senior and learned quite a lot it was one of those projects where the vision changes every couple of weeks and we, we tried a lot of different business models and there were things that I definitely learned there were things I learned about how I didn't want to run a company as well and at some point I felt ready to go and create a little consultancy on my own so yeah that's that's how it that's how it all came about and uh, because I knew so many startups and because I was talking to so many founders, I realized that funding was, uh, yeah, a product of need, shall we say. There's there's always there's always a need for more money, and particularly when it comes to uh, free, equity-free money from the government. So that's what I got into. Yeah. Okay. And and was your um so your studies at UCL were they business related? Not at all. Literature. Oh, I had I did a course in marketing as well, so tiny little bit. Oh, okay. So not necessarily formal business trainer, but obviously you had that kind of entrepreneurial edge. Yeah, I learned everything from the bearded geeks in meetups. <laughs> Do you still see any of the bearded geeks? Yeah, sometimes. I live in Hoxton, which is, you know... Oh, it's full of them. So, so it is full of them. Yeah, I, I see bearded geeks. But I mean, a fair, fair, fair amount of them. Yeah, 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 of course. Well, they're, they're not as... Um, they're not on the streets as much as they were in previous months, but yeah. we've got lockdown to thank for that. And, and so how did you learn to, to run a startup then and, and advise startups? Or was that just something you picked up by, by doing then? Definitely. And uh, my co-founder, who is also my, who still is, (laughs) was also my partner in life, had a bit more experience running teams, being a a manager at Accenture. 
I didn't really have experience managing people or, you know, running a company, not at all. So yeah, definitely it's something that I picked up just doing it. Yeah. And that led you to obviously founding Grant Tree, which you which you're still obviously running now. Right now, actually, the interesting thing is both Daniel and I have uh, stepped away a little bit. We appointed a CEO and the company is pretty much self-managing, which is great. I still do bits and pieces of work for it, but it's fantastic that we've achieved this goal of the company being so self-sustaining. Oh, okay. And what's been, what's been key to that success then? Well, we, as you, as you know, we've, have an, uh, we have open culture um, and that's underpinned by the structure of um, holacracy, which is an alternative to hierarchy, and also uh, open pay, transparent financials. So we have quite a few mechanisms in place that have allowed us over the years to let go of control and eventually arrive where we are right now. So at a place where the company can self-manage and does. Fantastic. And then, so during that time then when you were more actively involved in Grantry, how how did burlesque fit into all of that? I'm dying <laughs> to know. Yeah, burlesque was uh, a little adventure of mine. At some point when I was really, really in 24-7 growing the business, uh, incredibly busy, incredibly tired, I felt that I really needed to find a creative outlet, that the, probably the best, most outrageous part of me wasn't being fulfilled so it was one day when I was walking around Piccadilly Circus and I um, there's this joint called Café de Paris which is which I for all I know is still there and I looked in and there was I think a rehearsal of a burlesque show and on the spot I decided I needed to become a burlesque dancer I needed to find out how to go about it so I emailed a few girlfriends one of them sent me details of a school called the Chikovit I did a few courses with them and off I went. I was performing in quite a few clubs in London and it was tremendous fun. Amazing. And um, so how much training is involved then? Because presumably it's, it's, quite a, um, it's quite a skill to learn. Well, you know, pretty much anybody can show their ass to a crowd. To a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> it just boils down to with what this is true. skill and refinement you show your ass I mean to, to be serious about it it's there's quite a bit of story storytelling story involved in burlesque so there are different two different almost branches of it one is a glamorous burlesque where it's all about the striptease and taking off your gloves very slowly and the Dita Fontese type of burlesque and the other one which I'm more interested in is storytelling kind of theatrical burlesque where it's all about the the act it's all about the lead up to the striptease so why do you strip uh, how do you make fun of yourself? It could become almost a um, stand-up comedy or circus type of performance. So uh, the best burlesque, burlesque girls I've known have had backgrounds in different types of performing arts and they were able to bring it into their burlesque performance. So for me, that was singing. I was singing in all of my acts live and that was amazing. And typically I would take a song and I would completely change it about invent a new story and go with that 
It's it's funny you mentioned stand up comedy because my mind was already there because I'm I mean I'm obsessed with stand up comedy really? anyway. Oh, that's cool. And I've always noticed parallels with um, just delivering a talk or a speech and and just the art of delivering good comedy on stage. Absolutely. And in fact, we've sent some of sent some of our staff on workshops, stand up comedy workshops, to try and help them kind of overcome that anxiety of presenting, but also just just relaxing sufficiently to just make a bit of a fool of yourself oh, on stage. Totally. That must have been really, really amazing to do. Do you remember what it was like your first ever performance? Yeah, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was so on it. I was, I was perfectly prepared, but not over prepared. And I really, really managed to capture the attention of the audience. So it was one of those moments I have had a few in my life where I was completely in the zone and they were just so with me. I started the act with, I went on stage with, in my perfect business suit because it was, uh, my first ever act was a was a um, corporate dominatrix kind of going over dead bodies of men on her way to the top, who is actually, actually a sex slave. So what she really craves is to be dominated by by somebody else anyway so I had this perfect business suit underneath which I had a costume made of chains and belts like a submissive type of costume uh, but over this was a beautiful um, made to measure business suit and I started the act by going on stage and and basically staring at the audience for like 10 seconds in silence and it was so intense and they so got me because they totally didn't expect that somebody would just basically stand there. And then I took off one leather glove and just like smacked it on the floor with anger. <laughs> yeah. And they were everybody went woo. <laughs> so and then I then I sat on a on a like makeshift sofa because it was supposed to be the setup. The the act is called out of office and it's supposed to be my living room, a, a place I walk into when I'm when I'm back from the office. And I started singing uh, and it was amazing. They were so with me. And when I finished, I just felt absolute elation. I was just on top of the world. I knew I smashed it and it was amazing. Oh, wow. I was expecting quite the opposite for your first um, your first attempt. But that um, sounds like it went really well. Yeah, it worked. It really worked. It really worked. I, yeah, even talking about it, I feel so happy. Yeah, well, it sounds like it went phenomenally well. So uh, I'm dying to ask then. So your book, What the Business Leader Learned from the Stripper, which yes. I understand will be available sometime next year. Yes. What made you want to to write the book? And without meaning to ask such a stupid question, what is it about? Yeah, of course. So it's the book marries two aspects of my personality. So one, the, the businesswoman, the a business girl who's very active, very interested in getting her teeth into business deals and building companies and investing in companies, which I also do. And my showgirl persona, which is fun and risque and provocative and not interested in status quo at all and feminist and proud and all that. So... The book brings them brings them both together and talks about what I've le- what they have learned from each other, um, and also it explains different parts of our setup and our culture at Grantry, 
preceded by story. So every chapter, every chapter is preceded by a story from a burlesque world, and then that is taken into a business context. So yeah, that's. I really hope a lot of people get to enjoy it. I've I've heard you say because you kindly donated a, a wonderful isolated talk. So I've heard you refer to having those split lives. Yeah. But clearly there was there was overlap, and it wasn't just a case of of learning. What did you learn about business from burlesque? I.e., that ability to stand up in front of a crowd and be that focus of attention when, say, pitching, for example. Yeah. But but it but it went both ways, didn't it? So you 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 took learnings from each, and 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 they kind of fed into each other. Absolutely. So because I was comfortable showing my ass to strangers on stage, I was also more confident in business, and because I was a capable businesswoman I was so much more organized and goal-oriented in my burlesque career amazing and how long how long did you how long was your did your burlesque career last two three years maybe at some point it just ran its course I felt like okay I've done it I've been there I've done it time for something else perhaps but it still is that burlesque persona is still very much uh, involved in my my business dealings and also it's uh, recently over a year ago a couple of friends mentioned I mentioned I should be writing and I was I've never you know I've I've written articles but I've never thought or planned on writing a a book but when the idea first appeared I knew I had to bring in the burlesque girl uh, into my writing how how was that process of, of, of writing the book? So you mentioned vomit edit. Uh, <laughs> at first, yeah, that's what I did. So at first I wrote the so-called vomit edit where I talked a lot about my blessed days, about what I think on different issues, some of them quite loosely connected to business. So uh, at first, I think it's really important as a writer to let it all rip to let it all come out and then it's time to edit and to actually think okay given the structure of the book and who it is for and who who will read it and what's useful to them what should stay and what should go yeah no I, I think I made this point to you before that it's just it's just such a it seemingly makes the the idea of writing a book so much more accessible the, the vomit edit just getting it all out and yeah. then as you say, editing through rather than over. Like, I think people can be too anxious about needing to have a, a structure and a final correct structure in place before they put pen to paper. But of course, that's almost setting yourself up to fail, I imagine. Yeah, some people write starting from structure, starting from, okay, so what, what should it look like? My business partner and my, my husband when he writes his stories or articles, he very much starts with the structure. So that's also a way to go. But it can be a bit intimidating and it can be, okay, I need to produce a final version with the first edit or the first go, which is nearly impossible. So I'm definitely the proponent of the vomit edit. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. And um, it's, a, it's a brilliant title, but it wasn't the original title for the book is that right yeah the original i i really fought long and hard about calling the book cunt in the workplace (laughs) cunt standing (laughs) as you meant for curious unapologetic notorious and trustful it's a framework that i invented for how to marry up the feminine and masculine side of your leadership 
And uh, yeah, that I was quite serious about calling the book that before I got some feedback from a few publishers and I realized maybe it's not such a great idea, but um, I was very excited about it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, as you said um, previously, it's a, it's a powerful word, isn't it? So, so what is that framework, though? What is that cunt framework? Sure. So as I mentioned, uh, we both, regardless of gender, have two different sides to how we lead. There's going to be the goal-oriented, structure-oriented side, which is, um, you know, traditionally by tantric masters, for example, referred to as the masculine side. And then there is the side which is more about surrender, more about trusting the moment, more about tuning into what's important, more about listening to people. Um, And that's referred to as the feminine side again nothing to do with gender just uh, all of us have both masculine and feminine sides and um, two qualities in Kant curious and trustful are feminine qualities and two qualities notorious and unapologetic are masculine qualities so it's when one applies the flame framework one becomes a more wholesome balanced leader that's the idea okay that makes a lot of sense so then specifically, is it, is this, are these the kind of four qualities from that framework that you think enable success in terms of uh, as a leader, as these leadership qualities? I definitely think, think that they would lead one to becoming the kind of leader that the world really needs right now. So the balance of, of insight and tuning into people and being able to, to in intuitively recognize things on one hand and on the other hand decisiveness and being action oriented so i think that that both of those the compassion driven side and the uh, results driven side is what constitutes the kind of leadership that the world really needs particularly and will need particularly in the post-covid reality yeah because i mean there's there's quite a nice instinctive contrast between some of those words just the idea of being notorious say and that kind of relentlessness yeah. but equally being trustful uh just kind of there's, there's that nice balance there which i which i suppose why one is seen as masculine and one is seen as feminine yeah yeah and are these are these the qualities that you think have led you to succeed yourself I would like to think so, but I keep I keep evolving. I keep kind of mastering those qualities. It's a kind of never-ending project. I'd like to think that at Grand Tree we have a nice balance in our culture between goal orientation and results-driven part of our culture and more people-driven part, compassion-driven part, surrender-driven part. I'd like to think that we've got we've we've got it more or less, but it's 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 a balance which is not easy to hold and it's a continuous work in progress yeah but but it all feeds into having that culture you talked about an open culture company earlier as well is that is that yes. something that's encouraged them within the workplace to to follow these qualities absolutely i would say that um the key principle of open culture is treating people as adults and really trusting them to do great job and to do the job they've been hired to do and it may sound like a cliche but it has some very serious uh, consequences because if you really trust people then why wouldn't you give them information to financial information of the company why wouldn't you let them make important decisions including decisions about their own salary so you know this very simple 
by the sound of it, principle actually has quite substantial consequences for the culture and what people are encouraged and empowered to do. Yeah, you've explained it as, as being quite emotionally loaded. What did you mean by that specifically? I probably meant that um, instead of water cooler conversations, you know, hush-hush conversations, which people have in companies of, of all sorts anyway, we kind of read it, let it rip. So we, we, we let tens- tensions surface probably much quicker than they would normally do in, in a company that's more closed, that has a more closed culture. Um, we have sessions which we call WIRN, which is what's important right now. And during these session, sessions, everybody is encouraged to bring up anything that they feel the company is important in the context of business. And very often people just have a little rant, you know, complain about something. And that's absolutely fine. It's a place to vent. It's a place to talk about things that you're not necessarily happy about. And you don't have to have a solution. It's just important for things to be expressed and to be vented. Um, so yeah, maybe it's a little bit more emotionally loaded in a sense that it brings up tensions and conflicts to the surface, but I, I'm pretty sure that all those tensions and conflicts are present in any company and any, in any team. And if you don't let them be vented soon, sooner or later, they will kind of turn into this beast or something that's much more difficult to deal with and control. Yeah, definitely. I can I can completely get that because it's much more decisive, isn't it? And I suppose your your point about the water cooler conversations that of course happen in every every organisation, regardless of size or, or culture, it, it you're 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 nipping it in the bud really, and not yeah. allowing it to fester and become something something perhaps bigger and more uh, poisonous. Yeah, totally. And has this has that culture translated? into the remote working arrangements that we all find ourselves following at the moment? I would say it translates really well because uh, our teams are used to being agile and self-managing. So, And quite a few people, because we have flexible working, and what we mean by that is that people are literally encouraged to design their schedule according to what fits their needs and what fits their um, energies and their also daily lives best because all of us have a lot of our our life admin to do and particularly those of us who have kids as long as they get things done and people do get things done as long as they have the right environment to do that but that that does make a lot of sense it's instinctively uh, I feel like it's not necessarily traditionally British we're all very much stiff up at lip and don't like to kind of air our grievances we'd much rather kind of wallow and write a letter from afar <laughs> yeah t- totally yeah no letters Which isn't a good thing. Tree, yeah no letters let, let it rip yeah yeah that transparency I suppose long term anyhow can only can only uh, be a positive perfect and so so tell us about the book then so is the book now finished is it is it going to be available to pre-order at any time soon how can we um how can we keep an eye on that yes it's going to be published the next summer but i'm likely to be able to pre-sale copies of it earlier i'm really excited about bringing it to market it's the first book that i've written and yeah i dare say i think it's quite fun and i've got some reviews from people that it's definitely 
for example, Sam Conniff, who wrote Be More Pirates, he really enjoyed it. Bruce Daisley, um, who wrote The Joy of Work, really enjoyed it as well. Uh, so I dare say that it's it's going to be a good one. Fantastic. And how would you recommend our listeners, you know, do keep an eye on that? Can they sign up to hear more? Absolutely. If you go to paulinatenner.com, you can sign up for the, to the waiting list. And I also have... Um, quite an active Instagram account at the unapologetic speaker that you can sign up to um, and follow me there. Perfect. Perfect. We'll, we'll link to those on, on this episode too. Um, I've got a couple of listener questions, Paulina, for you. Amazing. Let's go. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names is notoriously fraught with danger, but we've got two to put to you. So number one is from Katie and Katie asks, what are your top tips for leadership in a remote working world? Good question. I think I would start with really trusting people to do their work, trusting them to manage their resources. And also, I wrote a blog about it recently, uh, really looking after their mental health and well-being, so, or helping them look after it themselves. So in a situation of a lockdown where we rarely leave our home offices and feel quite isolated, it's kind of easy to... Um, lose the lose the right balance and lose the mental well-being so I would say definitely um, boost kind of social life in your remote office um, we have quite a few ways of doing that Grantry we have daily meetups on Zoom we have quizzes uh, we have different different things where people are really encouraged to speak their mind, to get in touch with colleagues, to buddy up, to really feel part of the office and part of the culture. I think that's really important in the remote working scenario. Yeah, no, that's that's good advice because it is challenging. I mean, we found it challenging here. Mm. And and your point about looking after mental health is, I mean, there's, there's new challenges there. There's always been challenges around that, of course, but a lot of them seem to have been kind of... Um, exaggerated by the conditions we're in now yeah question two is from rob rob says on your linkedin profile one of your specialities is being a human potential advocate a term you admittedly coined up what does this mean and could you explain a bit more about it yeah of course so i believe that overall on the planet we have more than enough talent and more than enough creativity and capability to solve all sorts of civilizational crises that we're dealing with, so environmental, uh, poverty, illnesses, COVID. And if we're able to channel all that potential in the right way, empower people in the right way, I think we've got more than enough capability globally to deal with everything that we need to be dealing with in this day and age. And that's what I mean by human potential advocate. I believe that people are incredibly wise and I believe in people's genius and ability being in the right circumstances and and, and encouraged and nurtured to being able to shine every single person um, given they are in the right circumstances and they're obviously aware themselves of what that genius is, is able to contribute and because of that, I also believe in startups and I invest in startups. That's why I walk the talk. I, I, if I'm a human potential advocate, 
I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and invest in people whose ideas I think can change the face of the of, of the planet. That's amazing. And then, and then with the startups, then, do you typically find they're small teams? I mean, to me, startup, I think of one or two people. But do you ever get startups where you've got a bigger kind of collective? Yeah, of course. Um, granted, we do we deal with plenty of startups who are well funded. So some of them could be, you know, could have as many as a few hundred employees even and still be in the startup stage in the pre-revenue stage sometimes. So it, it all depends on what they're going for. Um, we never raised funding as Grantree, so we started with two people in a second bedroom, literally. But <laughs> those were the days. <laughs> but many people raised plenty of funding before they actually release a product. Yeah. Okay. And that human potential um, that you mentioned there and explained, is that something you see at scale as well? So when you meet bigger teams of startups that that collective as i mentioned earlier do you see that is as a collective or is that more individual uh, both so when people when talented people come, come together in a collective funding or in an organization that intelligence or that genius gets multiplied obviously given the right structure the right culture the right setup and it's been amazing to watch how grantree kind of got a life of its own and became a being of its own outside of my and my co-founders kind of vision and when we really gave the power away it it felt as if a, a new kind of being was emerged that was born um into the world and it's that's what it's like in any collective or in, on any organization that's conscious and consciously wants to bring people together with their individual capabilities but enhance what they're able to do personally by being in a talented team i heard a fantastic quote a couple of years ago which was that there's not one person in the world that knows how to build a boeing 747 aircraft but there are mm. ten thousand that do that's that's a good one and that idea of collective intelligence is really important i'm not sure how true that is but if i just assume for one second that that is true that there's probably not one person in the world that could do it from or take it from scratch they need to pull in that other intelligence from other people yeah yeah um and i think there's a particular genius in the collective as well that emerges i've really felt it in i'm part of a policy panel at the institute of engineering EIT um, engineering and technology and when I participate in those big board meetings it feels like there's an extra layer of intelligence and insight that is brought into existence when a group of really capable people get together a group of really capable people who also respect each other and give each other an opportunity to add value yeah, and, and you need that too, don't you? So even in um, a, a slight sidestep into our marketing um, role here at, at GASP, you need to have other people, not just to nod along, but to challenge ideas and thoughts so that you can refine them and improve them. Absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, the final uh, part of our interview then, Paulina, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests <laughs> So they are question one, what advice would you give to your younger self? To trust my intuition and really go for it regardless of what anybody else might 
think or feel. Yes, yeah, it, I think you're. I think you're right there. Younger selves tend to be more full of self doubt. Yes, and uh, no. I I find I had that kind of chutzpah and probably risk taking attitudes that I I still do that I still do now. But back then, there's not much to lose, literally. So <laughs> what I did, you asked about my first serious job. So it wasn't actually cleaning the the loose, which was a job, but not very. <laughs> Not a very serious one. I pitched myself as a UK country director to a few Polish software companies that were exporting their services, but not quite working with the UK market yet. And I had literally zero experience in business. And here I was pitching myself as a UK country director and saying, I can be here for you on the ground. I can manage, you know, acquisition of new clients, et cetera, et cetera. And funnily enough, one of them said, yes, we're interested. <laughs> wow. So, so yeah, so that was my first job. I pitched myself into, into a big corporate organization and I actually worked with them for a year or so. Oh, wow, that's amazing. I even managed to, I even managed to get some clients on the UK market, so that was funny. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, not certainly self-doubt wasn't an issue for you then. Probably not when it came to when it came to doing something crazy. My adventure spirit took over. Uh, there's always a bit of self doubt, I guess, but there was plenty of adventurousness which I had and which I still do. And a different amount of risk, as you as you said yourself. Yeah, there was there was literally nothing to lose. Whereas these days, with a company like Grantree over four, four million turnover, there is yeah there, there are things to lose. So we need to consider things a little bit more carefully. Yeah. Cool. Uh, question two then is, if you could banish one thing from your industry, what would it be and why? Good question. So in the when it comes to one branch of our business, which is filing research and development tax credit claims for people, so getting, in other words, getting a proportion of what they spent on R&D back as cash, because of uh, what some of our competitors on the lower end of the market have done, there is a spammer attitude so people are basically thinking of, of tax credits providers as, as spammers and time wasters, etc. Um, I quite like to banish that. And uh, I, I'd like to think that we're working on creating a better name for tax credit providers in general um, on the market. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Funnily enough, I think we've been approached by some tax credit providers. And, and you're right, there is... I wouldn't be surprised at all. No, but you're right. There is that. I suppose it's just um, a lazy perception due to perhaps I don't know the scale of 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 how many approaches there might be. But um, it's a very fair point. Number three, are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners? Sure. Um, we used our what what's become almost our organizational bible, reinventing organizations by Frederick Laloux. Uh, if you heard about the if you heard about Teal, which is a certain stage in the evolution of company consciousness, uh, it comes from that book. So it divides the organizations that are present in the world today into a few different categories, which are color-coded and um, starts off with, with amber and red and progresses onto orange, green and teal. Uh, fascinating read really if you're looking to create a conscious company really worth your while 
Then books by Robert Keegan, so in over our in over our heads, for example, which we use to recruit people. So we um, we use Keegan's methodology about the different stages of consciousness in adult life of humans in adult life. Uh, we use that to kind of determine what degree of complexity our candidates are able to handle and therefore whether or not they should progress in our recruitment onto the next stage. So that's quite an interesting read. My, my book, Once It's Out. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's top of our list. Now, that's good because we've not had either of those books before, actually. It's always um, it's always interesting which books do come up time and time again, and then we get the odd yeah. uh, episode where there's where there's new books. So that's fantastic. And then number four is we always dedicate every episode to somebody, and we bestow that on a on our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode to somebody? First thing that came is Freddie Mercury. I had no idea where this has come, where this came from, but let's 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 do it. I think we'd like to be a rock star amongst the amongst funding consultancies, and maybe that it, that's why it makes sense. Uh, Freddie, this one is for you, and thank you for all the amazing art that you produced when you were here with us. Yeah, that's brilliant, actually, and that's um, quite a coincidence because I was raised in a very uh, Freddie Mercury friendly house. My, you probably uh-huh. just made my mum's day. Um, dedicating oh, this episode to him so so this episode is proudly dedicated to freddie mercury yes and as a as a as a final call to action then everyone listening can head over to this episode um we'll share links to everything discussed from paulina's fantastic book reinventing organizations in over our head we'll stick your isolated talk in there as well and we might even chuck in a freddie mercury oh, yeah, um, musical tribute too <laughs> why why not chuck in a song chuck in a song definitely okay no. we'll do any 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 requests well it has to be show must go on which for those listeners who don't know he actually uh, recorded when he knew he had aids but he ha- he hadn't told his bandmates yet so That's it kind right. of adds an additional layer of Kind of story to how meaningful that song was when he was singing it. Yeah. It's, every time I hear it, I kind of there's a little heartbreak of knowing that he he knew, but the his bandmates didn't know yet. Yeah, there's a lot lot of meaning there. Fantastic. We will add. We will certainly add a link to uh, to that on our listing too. Brilliant. How else can people get more Paulina Tenor? Oi, oi, oi. Uh, hit me up. Uh, invite me to your event. I speak quite a lot at technology, con- um, technology events and conventions around Europe and beyond. So uh, super happy to contribute to your events. Uh, very happy to be asked about culture. Very happy to be hit up about what we do at Grand Tree, which is providing R&D tax credit and grants to our clients, uh, consulting services around those two. Uh, yeah, head over to Twitter. To, um, to Twitter, you can also, but um, Instagram, either the Unapologetic Speaker or, or Paulina Tenner, both are my accounts. Uh, have a look at on my website, paulinatenner.com, and stay in touch. Perfect. 
amazing. Well, we'll, we'll share links to all of those social profiles as well. So, well, thank you so much for joining us, Paulina. It's been a, it's been a pleasure, and I've really enjoyed it. Oh, brilliant! I'd enjoyed it too. And finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and review the pod. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch with us, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.